It's the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. The National Security Hour exposes the wolves in sheep's clothing and their nefarious plots to undermine and destroy U.S. national security. The National Security Hour is on the American Outlaw Talk Radio Network on iHeartRadio. Welcome to hear the voices of freedom and the outlaw truth. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Sargasson Geary, U.S. Army retired, CEO of the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement, and also the host for New Paradigms with Sargasson Geary. My guest today, as uh, you all expect, is Frank Gaffney, Jr. He is the Vice Chairman for the Committee on the Present Age of China and the founder and Executive Vice Chair of the Center for Security Policy, which he established in 1988. The center has been uh, nationally and also internationally recognized as a resource for timely informed and penetrating analysis of foreign and defense policy matters. Under uh, President Ronald Reagan, the late President Reagan, Frank acted as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy. He served as Chairman of the High Level Group, NATO's Senior Political Military Committee, and also as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear Forces and Arms Control Policy, which was under Assistant Secretary Richard Pearl. He was a professional staff member on the Senate Armed Service Committee. Frank, it's uh, good to have you here. Welcome. It's great to be with you, Sarges. Thank you very much for having me. Frank, I, I do want to start uh, with really what's happening uh, in the region, especially the elephant in the room, as we say, Israel and the Hamas war, and kind of get your thoughts on how we initially got here and what were those ties with the CCP uh, to this particular war. As you know, U.S. support for the war in Ukraine and now the war in Gaza has really kind of sapped some of our operational capabilities in accordance to some of the DOD um, requirements. And then the U.S. troops have now also deployed from UCOM to CENTCOM at a time of recruiting and readiness level shortfalls, while at the same time, the CCP, Russia, Iran, and other nations uh, have over almost two decades now of security, defense, intelligence sharing frameworks in the Shanghai Corporation Organization, uh, whose charter does specifically cite that the U.S. is uh, the main adversary focus for that particular alliance. I guess my question would be, is the U.S. stretched too thin now to deal with what I believe is the only existential threat that we have in almost 150 years, some would say, um, in American history, given our involvement in Israel, Syria, Ukraine, that can potentially bog us down and prevent a response possibly for the real danger of a possible CCP invasion and occupation of Taiwan. And more importantly, I would say, even though the uh, sea lanes in that region. I just wanted to get your perspective. I think that's the idea, Colonel. The enemy that I think you rightly believe to be the not only the great existential threat of our time, the greatest existential threat of all time, namely the Chinese Communist Party, has had as its express purpose waging war against the United States for decades. Initially, it was called unrestricted warfare, by which they meant uh, basically uh, panoply 
of non-kinetic means of attacking this country, uh, trying to uh, subvert it, trying to uh, weaken it, certainly trying to demoralize its people. Uh, economic warfare, political warfare, uh, energy warfare, uh, biological warfare, uh, and a variety of other measures that have been greatly enabled by what I consider to be the single most dangerous of those unrestricted warfare techniques, and that is what the Chinese call elite capture, which simply means they have managed to uh, get their hooks into leaders in our country, uh, not just in the political realm, but also the business, finance, media, academia, Hollywood, and the like. So all of that's going on as the backdrop, and under Xi Jinping, what I think we've seen of late uh, is uh, not only a people's war that was announced in uh, uh, back in uh, 2019, but also uh, evidence that they're building for a shooting war with us as well. So to come to your question, when you look at uh, what I consider to be acts of strategic arson in Ukraine and in Israel most recently, and the possibility of more to come on the Korean Peninsula, maybe in the Pakistani, Indian, uh, Kashmir struggle, uh, perhaps in Latin America. And almost certainly here on the home front at some point, all of that is prelude to what I think will be ultimately the aggression that you think is the principal line of attack for the Chinese in the future, namely an invasion of Taiwan. Whether it's actually going to be necessary for them to evade, invade Taiwan if they've done uh, all of these you know, various uh, uh, conflagrations in regions all over the world, distracting us, depleting our resources, uh, demoralizing us, as I say, um, then it may be possible for them to uh, conform to the ancient Chinese strategist Sun Tzu's axiom, which is that it is better to win without fighting. And I think that's where Xi would ultimately like this to go by simply defeating us in detail in these other ways. Well, it seems like he's been uh, doing a pretty good job of it anyway, um, given the fact that uh, China has his teeth into us. And unfortunately for us to push away means that we have to lose a lot of business interests, um, push away at multiple levels, to include the political level, away from the Chinese. Um, and I'm not sure if we're going to be able to wean ourselves off of them anytime soon. I do know that in the most recent book that you had uh, co-author or written, the indictment, uh, you looked at the uh, persecuting the Chinese Communist Party and the uh, friends for crimes against America, China, and the world. And you refer back to, as I had spoken in my opening remarks, where you had uh, served um, an administration under Ronald Reagan, where you state that he had mapped out and executed a strategy for taking down the uh, last uh, communist regimes that sought to destroy the United States. In this case, at that time, it was the Soviet Union, the evil empire, as you called it. But uh, 
what are the lessons learned that we can take from that to what your recommendation is as far as our approach to go after the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, and uh, how can we go ahead and ensure that we buck against them to where you may not be able to defeat the Communist Party, but you can at least pull the teeth out of the dragon, as I would say. I think that the principal takeaway from the Reagan experience is that um, these communist regimes are not invulnerable. They're not uh, able to exercise a permanent hold on power, though it looks, you know, oftentimes as though they're um, in complete control. Uh, they actually generally speaking, have a rather tenuous hold on power because basically the only way they can maintain it, given what they demand of their populations, is uh, such sacrifice and such hardship uh, that if there's a perception that they are, in fact, vulnerable, uh, there's a distinct possibility that their people will rise up against them, especially if they have our help. And uh, I think it preoccupies uh, tyrants like Xi Jinping uh, and like, you know, the series of uh, leaders of the Soviet Union in its latter days. Uh, how much could we um, exploit their weaknesses and most especially the illegitimacy of the regimes to um, make common cause with people who are being brutally oppressed by those like the CCP in China, uh, even as it threatens us. So we have a natural commonality of interest. And I think if we especially do as Reagan did, you mentioned evil empire being one example of it. Um, he worked tirelessly at delegitimizing the Soviet Communist Party, and we should be doing the same. Not certainly propping up the Chinese Communist Party as uh, the Biden administration uh, is not only reflexively want to do, but also doing at the moment. You know, the, the issue becomes that at that time, the United States had a national security strategy to deal with uh, Russia. Uh, and I believe from my experience, being an Assyrian born in Iran and after the Iranian Revolution coming to the U.S., um, I really realized that U.S. never ever had a foreign policy towards uh, um, the Middle East, but they had it based on what Russia might be doing in the Middle East. Um, do you get a sense that um, there is any type of a national security strategy yet developed by the um, uh, current and uh, even uh, previous administrations that did look at China not as being just a controller, but as an adversary that we have to counter against? I think the, uh, well, I was going to say Biden administration, I would I think more accurately describe it as the Obama-Biden 3.0 administration has, like its two predecessors, 1.0 and 2.0, pursued a pretty clear policy, not, not a particularly good one, but a pretty clear policy towards the Middle East, and that is to raise up Iran 
the the mullahocracy that has misruled that country uh, for decades, uh, ever since we helped them overthrow the Shah of Iran and and come to power. Uh, The folly of doing this is so transparent, it's almost hard to credit that this could be something that's being deliberately done, and yet it is. Uh, Weakening Israel, uh, distancing it from the United States, uh, subverting the relationships that uh, it has fostered since uh, the Abraham Accords went into effect with four different Muslim or uh, Arab nations. And the net effect of this policy is, of course, to make um, a very dangerous regime to Israel, to these other nations, to us, more powerful and more emboldened. And uh, why anybody would want to do that is something we can discuss, but uh, it isn't self-evident. And as I say, I think it's, to the contrary, rather profoundly obvious that it is... uh, dangerous in the extreme but that nonetheless seems to be the sort of guiding principle of the biden team my guest today is again uh, frank gaffney we're speaking about uh basically the comprehensive approach of china's unconventional warfare against the united states um i do want our listeners to know that um, our deep dive is going to be specifically looking at the china and the shanghai corporation organization and what it's able to do as far as uh, China is concerned to be able to use that cooperation to reach out and touch uh, uh, various different regions that the U.S. is currently involved in. And I do agree with you on one thing, Frank, that I think that um, the way I had seen it when I was asked uh, just months ago, um, earlier this year, I would even say, I told uh, everybody that as the U.S. is now pulling back out of the Middle East, I thought that the new shaping of the Near East map would be where you have Israel, the Abraham Accord nations uh, working uh, possibly allied with India to kind of counter a little bit against China. And as you see what happened after October 7th, really uh, uh, the whole myth of a invincible Israel when it came to military operations was broken because of an unconventional warfare attack against them that they were not aware of uh, or were caught off guard. Uh, that actually did invade their nation, did kill their citizens. But at the same time, when you saw the backlash, what is happening in our universities here, given the significant amounts of ties to the Chinese Communist Party monetary support in those universities, and how maybe in the past, if you had anyone who may have made a comment that may have been seen as anti-Semitic, that that individual would have uh, been uh, uh, I, I is not the right term to use, but would have been in a position that um, it would have been detrimental to them. Today, uh, you have everybody in the street being anti-Semitic, and it's very difficult to even have the news media to counter it, to include the politicians who had initially stated to the uh, Jewish community here and uh, to the Israeli government that you know we do stand with israel our ally and israel feels abandoned today but this was a pretty much of a victory when it comes to the chinese communist party's ability to really counter what it was worried that was going to be a uh, effect against them 
which would be a strong Israel with the Abraham Accord countries working with them. Now, I don't know if you differ from that, but I think that uh, when it comes to it, from my perspective, CCP has done a pretty good job as far as information operations breaking the ability of Israel to uh, be able to be in a strong position to lead the world in the Near East, rather than where it is today, where all the enemy's eyes are on it. Yeah, whether the Chinese are particularly concerned with um, eliminating Israel's um, leading role in the Middle East or not is something we can debate. I think they certainly want to make sure that the United States is not a dominant factor in the Middle East. And to the extent that they can take us down by taking down or out, for that matter, um, our ally and most important bulwark against the various hostile forces, uh, Iran notably, but also the Muslim Brotherhood and assorted uh, other jihadi organizations um, in that region, then I think the Chinese would regard that as a good day's work. And again, I think this is one of the reasons why they were greenlighting with both uh, the Iranians and the Palestinians, uh, the attack that took place on October 7th. And they were, in addition to just greenlighting it, of course, I think they were promising to support it uh, in various ways, as well as to um, try to ensure that uh, the United States would not interfere with whatever was being done. So I think that's all going on. And, and to the extent that the... Um, uh, the Israelis uh, have been buffeted by this surprise attack. Uh, they're still obviously a very formidable force and I think will ultimately achieve the destruction of Hamas uh, to exactly what end remains to be seen, of course, but I think they are capable of doing that, provided the United States does not interfere and sabotage what Israel is trying to do. And, and that has been the Biden record to this point. Uh, there was a brief moment that, uh, on and after, immediately after October 7th, when he was professing his undying commitment to stand with Israel. But it's pretty clear that is not his position, not the position of his administration, at least. And uh, what is, Israel is increasingly buffeted by is um, an American ally that is intent on you know, getting um, them constrained and getting help to Hamas. And uh, part of the reason that that's um, going on, I believe, is that uh, just as the Chinese Communist Party has engaged in the elite capture and gotten itself into positions of influence uh, throughout our government and in myriad other sectors, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, most especially, and I think to some extent uh, the Iranians as well, have been able to penetrate our government and uh, engage in successful influence operations against it. It seems to be true, and uh, we're going to cover that in the second segment to the next time when we come back. Um, again, my discussion today is with uh, uh, Mr. Gaffney, who's a vice chair of the Committee on the Present danger China. 
Uh, for our listeners out there, I want you to know that American Outlaw Talk Radio plays on iHeart uh, Radio Network. You can also listen on our media platforms from any web browser anywhere in the world. We have the best in class apps available on Apple, Android, and Alexa, where we stream 24-7. And now you can also hear them on the podcast on these same apps. We will be back with Mr. Frank Gaffney on the second segment. In 2008, people could spend an average of 12 seconds on a task without becoming distracted. Five years later, it was only eight seconds. The digital age is narrowing our attention span. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. And unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top, shoot it down. Thousands of five-star reviews proves it works. Supercharge your brain and see the difference. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. The Natural Colon Cleanse. It's the ultimate digestive tune-up with Oxy Powder. It's crafted to alleviate the discomfort of gas, bloating, and occasional constipation. There's a reason why Oxy Powder is our number one seller. It worked. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Welcome back to the National Security Hour. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Sargasson Gear, U.S. Army Retired and the CEO of the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. Uh, our discussion today is, of course, with Frank Gaffney, uh, the Vice Chair of the Committee on the Present-Day China. Uh, I do want to make sure that our audiences know, as you're listening to our discussion today, that uh, all or part of my shows uh, do go directly to podcasts, typically one or two days after the broadcast is heard on talk radio. You can also hear them on Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, and I podcasts and many more be sure you subscribe and rate the show on apple Podcasts for me also be sure to make american outlaw or america outlaw.com your daily stop for the latest news and happenings we all must do our part and share the stories the articles the videos so that we can uh, also help secure america's future and more specifically uh, frank i do know we're talking about the news book that you had written um, I want our viewers to know that the indictment will be on the uh, site. So if you do want to purchase it, please go to the site and uh, uh, you can see what Frank lays out as far as a possible uh, course of action, what, ne what needs to be done in order to counter China. Frank, I do want to pick up on one piece, uh, kind of the possible wavering by the current administration as to the support it wants to give to uh, uh, Israel, I think uh, for now, um, you know, we have sent four structures to the region, but it doesn't seem like anybody's taking him seriously anyway to begin with. Um, it, it hasn't deterred Hezbollah from attacking uh, Israel. It hasn't deterred Iran from attacking our uh, basings uh, in the region. 
um, what happened that put us in a position that our force structures no longer give that type of a deterrence that in the past uh, would give to at least shaping the battlefield? Why did we get to this point? Well, I think the force structure that we've put into the region has by and large been placed there not for the purpose of helping Israel, but for the purposes of constraining Israel. So it hasn't had the desired effect of, you know, uh, strengthening um, the deterrent of uh, Israel and uh, diminishing the chances that the Iranians or their other proxies uh, may decide to uh, further intensify their aggression against the Jewish state. Um, to the contrary, I think it's emboldened them. Now, we haven't seen a full-on, you know, salvo of uh, the 100,000 rockets and missiles that they have in Hezbollah's area-controlled uh, Lebanon. But what I will say is I think that um, there has been a, a, a an ongoing low-level uh, fight there, and it's likely to get worse, um, and especially if... Uh, you know, there isn't a deterrence um, established to the, uh, the the increasingly dangerous uh, Iranian regime. And I say increasingly dangerous. Why? Because, among other things, um, not only not only are we failing to really deter Iran, we are enriching them as well as in emboldening them. We have. Uh, depends on who you talk to, but by some estimates, there's been something on the order of $40 billion in economic sanctions relief, with various waivers and sort of turning a blind eye to the Chinese buying up all of the oil that uh, Iran can export. Um, but the, the, the point is the same, that uh, if you wanted to really deter Iran, you would have two carrier battle groups in the uh, Arabian Sea, not in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, if you wanted to uh, dissuade these various uh, Iranian proxies from engaging in attacks against uh, Israel um, from southern Lebanon with Hezbollah to Iranian militia in Syria to Houthi rebels in Yemen, for example, um, you would be positioning your force structure differently and, and possibly bringing it to bear on some of the attacks that are taking place. You know, it's sometimes I wonder if it is just the way the U.S. systems are structured. I know that you've done a lot of work uh, with your organization and support of the Christians of the Middle East and the uh, region. And um, I remember when initially the genocide against the Syrian Christians began in 2014 to 2017, um, we actually ran. I, I was an advisory for our Assyrian army, the Assyrian Christian army that was fighting both in um, Syria and Iraq, conducting tier one, tier two level operations. And next year uh, is gonna be, of course, the 10 year anniversary when uh, our boys got involved into in combat operations. And uh, frankly, the only way I could sustain those four structures was we created a 501c3, which I'm the founder for, United Assyrian Appeal, 
in order to be able to give money to the multi-families of the ones, the loved ones who wanted to go and fight against ISIS. In this case, when we went to the State Department after we showed them what we had done, their recommendation was, well, if you want to get money from the United States, you have to go and be part of the Iraqi government militias. And in this case, you had, of course, Hashishabi, which is an Iranian militia. Well, we rejected that offer at that time. We said, no, we're not going to do it. They uh, split the Assyrian Christians into different forces. One was called a protection unit, and they placed them under the Hashishabi, the U.S. did, through the yeah. State Department. And so that's the way, only way you get your money. Well, we just found out just uh, a few days ago that the Hashishabi force structure of the 50th and the 30th, one is a Shabak, one is ran by Rian Kaldani, who's a person that now has taken over the Christian seats in the region. Um, and the Iraqi parliament, I should say, and he's not even, a, you know, considered Christian by most, uh, conducted attacks against U.S. forces. So mm -hmm. imagine if I had as a U.S. Army lieutenant colonel with 20 years vested uh, in this nation, seven years of continuous combat operations, had gone ahead and followed the requirements of the State Department and had taken our boys and actually put it under the Hashishabi, today I would be linked to a possible terror attack that took place from those forces uh, without my even approval uh, against uh, our forces, U.S. forces on the ground. Why is it that the U.S. systems are just not able to readjust? Or is it just they're inept? Or is it that the U.S. code is so much tied to everything it does that nobody wants to challenge it or change it to make it much easier for us to be able to operate um, with our hands open when it comes to changing policies against what is happening in the region in support of our allies like Israel. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, you know, I guess uh, to my way of thinking, one of the great strengths of um, this relationship, this alliance with Israel is that Israel is not looking for help in terms of uh, forces on the ground. And as you say, uh, you know, that can get complicated um, in some of these nations, especially the, the Arab ones. Um, but Israel is quite, you know, uh, set, and I think rightly so, on defending its own land and people. Um, will they request and, and gladly accept uh, armaments and uh, improved capabilities, um, you bet they will, especially in the midst of a shooting war where they're expending an enormous amount of arsenal, their arsenal every you know day. Uh, but I, I, I think it's an important distinction between this ally and, and practically any that I can, others that I can think of, that uh, they don't want our people on the ground fighting for them. And uh, so, you know, when one talks about um, the role of the United States and uh, how it is going to execute that role, um, it's, a, it's a very significant difference than what we've been seeing, um, well, from, you know, some at least in the Ukrainian government, for example, in the face of uh, an earlier act of aggression at the hands, I believe, of Xi Jinping as well as Vladimir Putin. You know, it it seems that 
as the war is taking place in Israel, for whatever we may not, uh, for whatever we may do in order to be able to support Israel, in this case, standing with them um, as an ally, at least in, in words, maybe not even in action, sometimes in action, with possible even approval of uh, uh, monies that could uh, help support Israel replenish what it lost. And keep in mind, Israel was very important for us too to replenish some of the stocks that the Ukrainians were looking for. So, you know, as they got hit, uh, you know, we we should give them an, at least an opportunity to replenish their stocks, uh, which I know that they're being squeezed on right now. But it seems like every dollar we give, let's say, to Israel to defend itself, two or three dollars go to the folks that Israel has to fight against, whether it be the Hamas or the Iranians. Is it a matter that on the national security strategy, U.S. is just going to continue this type of an operation in the Middle East for whatever it believes, either a political gain for itself or a strategic gain? Or is it uh, just, again, we go back to the question asked earlier in the last segment. Did we ever develop a national security strategy for the Middle East. Have you ever had one from your perspective, Frank? Well, I think we talked about that a moment ago. I, I think we've had one uh, certainly during the Obama-Biden years that uh, I just think is um, disastrously misguided in terms of, uh, yes, as you say, putting money, our own taxpayer money, into organizations that essentially funnel it to Hamas, like the UN uh, Relief Works Administration, um, UNRWA as they call it. Uh, I think we've been making mistakes uh, to support the Palestinian Authority as well with our resources. Um, but all of it, uh, as, uh, as it amounts to um, uh, propping up proxies or otherwise aiding and abetting proxies of Iran, that's that's a disastrous policy. Other administrations, Republican administrations and Democrat, have had somewhat differing views. Uh, some thought Israel was the obvious uh, key uh, element of whatever strategy we're pursuing. Others thought the Saudis were um, some, uh, again, Obama in particular believed not only that the Iranians were um, our best bet, but also the Muslim Brotherhood on the Sunni side, uh, which of course strained relations with the uh, the regimes that were friendly to us, relatively at least, uh, in the region, and each and every one of them had been threatened by the Brotherhood. In fact, a couple of them were taken down by it. So. Uh, the, all of that's in the mix, Sargis, but I, I think it, it comes back to not so much do we have a policy or don't we have a policy, but do we have clarity on the most single most important part of all of it, as I see it, which is it is the, uh, the attacks on Israel specifically, but more generally the, the animus of the Iranians on the one hand and the Muslim Brothers on the other, uh, whether they're funded by Saudi Arabia as they were in the past or whether they're funded by Qatar as they have been for some time, or whether they're funded by the Turks, whether they're otherwise enabled by 
those entities, those nations, um, they are all driven to hate Israel and seek its destruction and to hate America and seek its destruction and that of the rest of the free world as well, the non-Islamic world, and even, I guess, parts of the Islamic world, depending on which of those brands you're talking about. The Iranians want to destroy the Saudis. The Saudis would like to destroy the Iranians. But the, the thing is, it's a matter of, um, well, I call it Sharia supremacism that is the driving force here. It's not land. It's not uh, you know other kinds of concessions. It, it's an enmity towards the Israelis uh, and others that are deemed unbelievers, uh, particularly those of us in the West, this nation most especially, that um, we have to uh, be destroyed because that is Allah's will. That is what he has directed. Uh, Sharia, the sort of operating code of Islam, if you will, is a virulently supremacist uh, ideology, as, as you know, Sargent. And, and uh, it, it must lead to war uh, under one circumstance or another that will uh, either, you know, defeat and suppress the, uh, the jihadis, or it will defeat and destroy um, Western Judeo-Christian civilization. That seems to me to be the single most important piece of a realistic assessment of what our interests are in the region and the great shortfall in it, uh, irrespective really of the administration that is um, trying to promulgate and execute a policy. Uh, I, I, I would say to some extent, an exception was the Trump administration in this regard, but I think even it to some degree and the rest to a very substantial degree have completely misunderstood what we're up against. And it's Sharia supremacism, I believe. Oh, it definitely is. I think uh, the one place where maybe we in China look at the same issue in agreement is the fact that China is deathly worried about um, Islamic uh, radicals, not just within its own borders, but possibly being used to target it. It's surrounded by Muslim countries, and it placates constantly to the Islamic nations. And by the way, we may not be in the, uh, requiring oil from the Middle East anymore from the U.S. side, but China needs it. China doesn't have any other place to get that uh, requirement. You know, when the Shanghai Corporation Organization was established, which really gives the backbone to Iran to be able to do what it does um, as an intergovernmental organization. It was founded, of course, for those who don't know, uh, on 15 June of 2001, but it encompasses eight member states, which China is one, India, Kazakhstan, and all other stands, basically Kyrgyzstan, Russia, Pakistan, Chaikikistan, and Uzbekistan. And, uh, of course, that's the route to the uh, uh, Belt and Road Initiative. And then, of course, four observer states that were included in it, which were Afghanistan, uh, Belarus, Iran now is a partner, in, and also Mongolia. And then, of course, six dialogue partners, which have expanded now. 
with Armenia, Azerbaijan, Cambodia, Nepal, Sri Lanka, and Turkey. Um, and Saudi is uh, uh, moved into that hemisphere. It, it seems that this organization, if we can unpack it, unravel it, that will have a better shot of defeating uh, the Chinese Communist Party, at least from what it's trying to do uh, operationally uh, in South America. And in the next segment, we'll talk about that uh, and in the Middle East, but uh, more importantly, globally. So our discussion today is again with Frank Gaffney, and we will be back for the second uh, for the final segment of our show. AmericaOutloud.news is beaten to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. The Natural Colon Cleanse. It's the ultimate digestive tune-up with oxy powder it's crafted to alleviate the discomfort of gas bloating and occasional constipation there's a reason why oxy powder is our number one seller it worked go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15 percent off using the code OUTLOUD. global healing giving you the power to take control of your health naturally Welcome back again to the final segment of our, the uh, National Security Hour on the American Out Loud Talk Radio Network and on iHeartRadio. Again, I do want to remind our viewers out there or listeners, I should say, that America Out Loud Talk Radio plays on the iHeartRadio Network. And you can also listen uh, on our media platforms from any web browser anywhere. Our discussion uh, is continuing with Frank Gaffney uh, on how China is trying to affect the uh, uh, United States to its uh, warfare. And I brought up uh, in the last segment, the Shanghai Corporation Organization. Frank, how do we go after the Shanghai Corporation Organization, which now has its teeth, even in some of our allies, but in the Middle East region, um, and as it's expanding to the Southern Caucasus and trying to influence Europe? Well, it's a subset of a larger problem, isn't it? It's uh, part of an empire build-out that the Chinese Communist Party has been engaged in for quite some time, certainly throughout Xi's tenure. Um, It's mostly characterized by what they call the Belt and Road Initiative, and many of the countries in the Shanghai Cooperative Organization are part of that. In fact, I think probably all of them. Uh, They... uh, wind up taking money from China to build infrastructure in their countries, 
to give them access to their raw materials or whatever else they want, for that matter. Uh, and they do the bidding of the Chinese, more or less. And probably as time goes on, it will be more rather than less. Um, so that that is a problem in the stands and you know Central Asia and so on. Yes, but it's, it's also, I think, increasingly a worldwide problem. I mentioned in, in the first block, I think, the danger that the Chinese Communist Party under Xi Jinping, the arsonist, uh, will start a fire in our own, well, people historically called it backyard. I call it our front yard, namely uh, Latin America. And uh, you have uh, the BRICS initiative, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South, uh, South uh, Africa. Um, among now others, uh, all of whom are engaged in a similar kind of uh, uh, relationship. Uh, some, some, and I think the Shanghai Agreement has sort of a more military overlay to it, but uh, the others all have that implied. And at the very least, I believe what they're doing with the Belt and Road Initiative is um, building out an empire, yes, but building out power projection capabilities throughout that empire with ports and uh, airfields and rail networks and roadways and the like uh, that can lend themselves to varying degrees for the movement of goods and raw materials and the like uh, to the benefit of China, but uh, also can be ultimately weaponized if they see fit to do that. Hence my concern about having a Latin American front in this increasingly global world war. So what can we do about it? It's your question, I think, about his background. Uh, I, I think one thing we can do is stop funding the Chinese Communist Party. Because our money, provided by our American investors, mostly unwittingly, has, I think, been an indispensable source of capital for this colonial enterprise. Uh, some estimates say it's three trillion dollars has migrated from U.S. Wall Street firms managing pension funds and mutual funds and index funds and exchange-traded funds and the like. Some say it's as high as six trillion dollars. And you can buy a lot of malevolence, a lot of unrestricted warfare, if you will, a lot of people's war, uh, a lot of colonial um, you know, uh, stratagems and, and infrastructure buildouts and the like. And uh, simply cutting off access to our capital markets, which I have to tell you, Sergeant, uh, this is one of the dirty little secrets about Joe Biden's service to the Chinese Communist Party, as we've talked about other settings. In the words of a good friend and colleague of mine at the Committee on the Present Danger of China by the name of Charles Sam Faddis, um, an army officer in the past, but also a career undercover operative for the Central Intelligence Agency, in which capacity, of course, he used to recruit and run agents for our government for a living. So he knows a fair amount about the business, and he also knows the, what the lexicon is. And he says the correct 
term for Joe Biden's relationship with the Chinese Communist Party is that of a, quote, controlled asset of the CCP, unquote. And when you look at the controlled assets they have in places like BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street and Bridgewater. So, I mean, these are these are relationships uh, that the Chinese uh, uh, characterize as with, quote, old friends, unquote. But it goes to the subtitle of our book, The Indictment, as you mentioned, Sarges. The friendships that they've cultivated by capturing our elites, the help that they get from them, has translated into things that we obviously should not be doing that enable the buildup of our greatest existential threat to freedom. And I mean buildup militarily, yes, but also buildup in terms of competition. An, an, another parallel example to this at Wall Street is uh, what Sequoia Capital has been doing to put technology, advanced, often militarily relevant technology, certainly cutting-edge competitive technology, in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. Again, for profit. But that that's something that we ought to stop doing. If you If you just were able to essentially wall off uh, those kinds of help from the Chinese, I think it would go a long way to not only destabilizing China itself, which has got, as we talked about a little bit earlier, its own problems of a, you know, a very significant magnitude. These guys aren't 12 feet tall or 10 feet tall or 8 feet tall. But the bad news is that especially as long as we keep propping them up with financial support, with technology, political legitimacy and the like they'll keep going they'll keep becoming a metastasizing cancer against us and um, at the end of the day uh, they're more likely to press forward with what I think is the next step in Xi Jinping's plan and that is uh, aggression of his own not this proxies not these distracting fires, but uh, a very, very deadly one set by him himself here in the United States in part. It's unfortunate. And most of that uh, fire that uh, is being set here is, uh, you can see is somewhat manifest in our universities, but more importantly, even if you go talk to some of the folks that are operating in the multi-industrial complex, uh, just a year and a half ago, I was helping out with a gentleman uh, whose name will not be mentioned, but when he sat in front of the uh, um, one of the uh, military uh, industrial complex folks, the first question was, how are you going to make money for China? And that's not something that any of us were expecting to hear as a question asked, because frankly, we're trying to provide a su uh, support for our nation here. And the first question from the contracting contractors is uh, how can they make money for uh, people that they're beholden to. And um, I, I do want to touch upon something for our listeners, too. And me and you have talked about this, Frank. But, uh, you know, Michael Young, who's a dear friend of mine, um, and Dr. Lawrence Saline and others have now, you know, can um, obtain firsthand observations uh, that, you know, concerning those uh, thousands of multi-Chinese and even we we'll say other anti-U.S. Uh, nation males that are illegally entering the United States through the uh, 
whether it be the Darien Gap uh, through Panama, which is in flames right now, uh, Belize uh, air routes, or even the uh, sea routes through Miami. And then uh, what's funny about it, because these migrant waves that are coming from China are coming at a time where China has a travel restrictions uh, for overseas travel. So if you're Chinese, you cannot leave the CCP occupied Asia without the CCP approval. And many of these Chinese have later been uh, spotted on broadcasts in the U.S. with PLA flags, uh, People's Liberation Army uh, linking up with uh, CCP aligned cells here and also uh, purchasing and taking uh, weapon training. Um, China is really supporting um, these individuals. Um, they're even building the roads for the Darren Gap now uh, to make it much easier for folks to negotiate that gap uh, that are illegally entering the United States. Um, now, I'm not sure if uh, uh, how much of the threat uh, uh, is posed directly to the U.S. I can tell you I'm not sure how much the Homeland Security or Homeland Security Investigation has looked at it. Uh, but why is the United States still downplaying at best and at uh, worst whitewashing the current threats that are coming into our country? How much of a tie do we still have to the Obama administration idea that initially Wang Yi had proposed in Brookings Institute going back to 2012, China's vision for the role with the U.S. and when Susan Rice tried to actualize that concept as she gave her speech in George Washington University rather than trying to counter it. How bad is it? Well, I think if it were just a question of them downplaying or whitewashing it, it would be bad enough. I mean, we're talking about, well, I've heard numbers as high as 100,000 people who uh, observers like Michael Yan describe for reasons that you've mentioned, so just uh, as probably People's Liberation Army special operators who have been allowed to migrate into this country. Uh, I don't know if that's the right number, or if it's something smaller, maybe larger, who knows. Uh, and, and then on top of that, of course, as you say, there are military-aged, unaccompanied men, uh, most of whom are fit and uh, seemingly moving to varying degrees in groups um, from states in which Sharia supremacism is the law of the land. Uh, the thing that is most alarming is that this administration is doing nothing to stop this flow. And it's, it's the border that is wide open in general, and there are other people coming across it too, including you know, drug cartels. But these military uh, candidates, if not actual uh personnel that are coming here in large numbers. And, and to go back to a point that I feel very strongly about, it's not just the people. Um, the United States government has allowed a build-out of infrastructure here, too. Um, I, I'm not sure I would characterize it exactly like the uh, 
the Belt and Road Initiative elsewhere, but you know they do have ports that they effectively control. The Chinese Communists. Um, we've seen uh, things like a uh, covert biological warfare laboratory, at least a facility that had that capability. We've seen uh, so-called overseas uh, police service centers for the Chinese Communist Party in this country. We've got any number of um, uh, front groups like Liberation Road uh, and uh, Freedom Road Socialist Organization that work closely with the Chinese Communist Party's uh, consulate, consulate in, uh, in San Francisco, for example. And then on the other side of the ledger, the, the, the green part of the so-called red-green axis, you've got all that infrastructure that the Muslim Brotherhood has been allowed to build out here. You know, several thousand mosques uh, or Islamic centers um, that are, in fact, as is the case under the traditions of Islam going back to Muhammad's time, not simply or even principally houses of worship. Uh, they're bastions. They're typically fortified places in which uh, arms are stored, training is done, uh, obviously inculcating people with jihad and their duties under Sharia and all the rest. So what really worries me, Sargis, is not that we're turning a blind eye to it or we're pretending that it's not a problem. We are aiding and abetting it with both the Chinese and the jihadis. And it will come back to haunt us, I fear, especially if, as we've been talking about throughout this interview, Xi Jinping wants to light up a home front fire to further distract us, to further dissipate our energies and, and resources, to uh, interrupt, you know this business better than I, the logistical flow uh, that would have to be mounted to fight the Chinese in the Western Pacific from the continental United States and on and on. Um, this is what makes our situation so dangerous, so treacherously dangerous. Um, and the fact that uh, to make things absolutely a matter of insult being added to injury, we're not only opening the border, allowing these people in, we're actually helping them with taxpayer money go to whatever destinations they want. Well, with that said, I want to thank you, Frank, for coming on the show. Again, uh, for listeners out there, uh, my guest uh, today has been Frank uh, Gaffney. With that said, this is National Security Hour. God bless. Thank you.